This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Hello, my name is Andrew Berger from Tenenbaum Helpern, Syracuse, and Hurstrip in New York City. Today I focus on the Sony BMG versus Tenenbaum case, a decision by the District Court in Massachusetts. There the court, for the first time, held unconstitutional a jury award of statutory damages even though the award was within the statutory range that Congress set. This result, if affirmed on appeal, will change the shape of copyright litigation for years to come. Let me begin with the facts. Mr. Tenenbaum downloaded thousands of songs for free for more than eight years. He knew his conduct was illegal and ignored a cease and desist letter. When sued, he tried to shift responsibility to others and lied to cover his tracks in response to discovery requests and a deposition. At trial, after Tenenbaum conceded liability, the record companies sought statutory damages. The jury assessed damages of 22500 per song for each of the 30 songs Mr. Tannenbaum downloaded for a total verdict of $675,000. But the court, in response to a post-trial motion, set aside the verdict as unconstitutionally excessive. The court found the award far greater than necessary to serve the government's interests in compensation and deterrence. The court weighed the constitutionality of the award by applying the three guideposts set by BMW versus Gore. Those Supreme Court-created guideposts are, one, the degree of reprehensibility of defendant's misconduct, two, the difference between the actual harm suffered by plaintiff and the award, and three, the difference between the award and the applicable civil penalty. The court found all factors favoring Mr. Tenenbaum. Regarding the first factor of reprehensibility, Judge Nancy Gertner found that although Tenenbaum's conduct was willful, the court noted that file sharing is regrettably, quote, quite common, end quote, and Mr. Tenenbaum gained nothing financially from it. Regarding the second factor, the ratio of harm to the award, the court found the award far greater than any actual damage suffered by the record labels or any benefit reaped by Mr. Tenenbaum. Regarding the third factor, the difference between the award and penalty, the court said, it seemed to favor plaintiffs because there was no difference. The award and the applicable penalty are the same, but the court nevertheless gave the award no deference. The court reasoned that the Digital Theft Deterrence Act, under which the damages were awarded, did not contemplate that those damages would be applied against, quote, college students like Tenbaum who filed shared without pecuniary gain. The court therefore reduced the award by 90% to $67,500 or $2,250 per song. I suggest the court got it wrong, that the Gore guideposts do not apply here for at least four reasons. Number one, Gore was a punitive damage case. In contrast, Tenenbaum dealt with statutory damages. Punitive damages are designed to punish, but statutory damages serve other purposes, to compensate, impose appropriate damages on wrongdoers, deter future infringements, and promote the creation of intellectual property. Number two, Gore's guideposts derive from the need to give defendant notice of the severity of the penalty that may be imposed, but the statutory damage scheme in the Copyright Act already gives notice of the range of damages, and a verdict within that range is entitled to substantial deference. Number three, the second Gore guidepost weighs the relationship between the punitive award and the actual harm, but this guidepost has no application to statutory damages, which may be awarded without any showing of harm. And number four, the third Gore guidepost judges the propriety of the award by focusing on its relationship with the applicable penalty. But this guidepost is irrelevant here because the award is by definition the applicable civil penalty. 
Tenenbaum avoided the identity between the award and the penalty by reaching an extraordinary conclusion. The court stated that when Congress passed the Digital Theft Deterrence Act of 1999, Congress did not intend to apply the statutory damages scheme to, quote, non-commercial infringers sharing and downloading music through peer-to-peer networks, end quote. The court stated that there was, quote, substantial evidence indicating that Congress did not contemplate that the Copyright Act's broad statutory damage provisions would be applied to college students like Mr. Tenenbaum. No doubt those students across the country are loudly cheering this result, but the substantial evidence the court relied on were offhand comments by Senators Hatch and Leahy made at hearings after Congress passed the digital theft statute. In fact, the legislative history of the aptly named Digital Theft Deterrence Act demonstrates the opposite, that it sought to address the growing online theft of intellectual property by all infringers, whether college age or not. Congress expressed the need for this legislation in words that echoed Mr. Tannenbaum's conduct. Congress stated, by the turn of the century, the development of new technology will create additional incentives for copyright thieves to steal protected works. Many computer users simply believe they will not be caught or prosecuted for their internet conduct. Also, many infringers do not consider the current copyright infringement penalties a real threat and continue infringing even after a copyright owner puts them on notice. The text of this Deterrence Act does not distinguish between classes of infringers nor immunize file sharers from statutory damages. Because the statutory language was plain, the court should not have examined congressional intent, much less relied on after-the-fact comments by two senators. I suggest the constitutionality of the Tenenbaum verdict is better assessed by applying the standards set forth by the Supreme Court back in 1919 in the Williams versus St. Louis Railroad case. Their two sisters sued the railroad for overcharging them by 66 cents. The Arkansas statute under which the sisters brought suit allowed for a penalty of between 50 and $300. Each sister received a jury award of $75, or one that was 114 times greater than the damages suffered. The Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the award. Williams stated that an award would only violate due process if it were, quote, so severe and oppressive as to be wholly disproportioned to the offense and obviously unreasonable, end quote, giving, quote, due regard for the interests of the public, the numberless opportunities for committing the offense, and the need for securing uniform adherence to the law, end quote. The court expressly rejected defendants' attempts to test the constitutionality of this admittedly, quote, large penalty by comparing it with actual damages, stating that statutory remedies for, quote, public wrongs, end quote, are not required to be, quote, confined or proportioned to plaintiff's loss or damages. The verdict in Tanabam, although substantial, appears to fit within the Williams framework. It was only 15% of the maximum of $4.5 million the jury could have awarded, and therefore seems not obviously unreasonable in view of Mr. Tanabam's conduct which defines willfulness. What are the consequences of this verdict if affirmed on appeal? Well, the case will negatively impact copyright enforcement for a number of reasons. First, it will make it much more expensive. Any plaintiff who seeks statutory damages in any substantial sums will now have to deal with a due process issue. And constitutional litigation is by its nature difficult, uncertain, and of course expensive. Second, it may mean that many meritorious copyright cases will never be brought. That's because Tenenbaum requires the owner to prove actual damages as a precondition to recovering statutory damages. But many copyright holders will be unable to show actual damages. The value of a copyright, especially at its inception, is often impossible to estimate. How much is an unpublished novel by a first-time author worth? Further, requiring copyright owners to bear the burden of proving actual damages is contrary to the purposes of statutory damages, which are intended to relieve the copyright holder of that burden. 
Third, in cases involving public performances, the only direct loss is the lost license fee. Limiting the copyright owner to only recovering that fee in a copyright case invites infringers to infringe with no risk of loss. Fourth, the copyright holder is relegated to proving actual damages. They're often less than the cost of detecting, investigating, and for sure litigating. So why bother? And lastly, although actual damages in copyright litigation includes the infringer's profits that are attributable to the infringement, there may be none to collect, either because an infringer earned none, conveniently lost its sales records, or never kept any. So what about the future? Well, we know that downloading problem is not going away. Music piracy will continue to rob the U.S. economy of substantial sums each year. So many say that the music labels, of course, agree that piracy is ever to cease. Large verdicts of the kind meted out in the Tannenbaum case may be necessary. But at the same time, there will be a due process limitation. But where that limitation falls is still uncertain. Therefore, until there's further clarity, Copyright holders seeking statutory damages may therefore wish to set their sights a bit lower, seeking statutory damages of maybe three to five times actual damages, assuming, of course, there are actual damages, till those due process limits are clarified. In any case, hopefully the First Circuit will be less willing to make legal behavior affordable. If anyone wishes further information about the Tenenbaum or other cases involving intellectual property, especially in the copyright trademark area, I invite you to take a look at my blog, IP in brief at www.ipinbrief.com. Thanks. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.